One common request that we've been getting from you, the listener, is to learn more about us as the hosts of this conversation. As you've probably heard, Dan grew up with a schizophrenic, manic-depressive mother. If you want to know what he learned about leadership from her, then this conversation's for you. Hello, my friends. My name is Chad, and this is the Naked Leadership Podcast, high-stakes conversations for relentless company founders. My co-host and I have over six decades of combined experience in leadership coaching, and this podcast is where we explore it all. There is no conversation too risky. In this episode, I get the opportunity to slow the conversation down a little and interview Dan about his experience growing up with a manic-depressive schizophrenic mother and how that deeply influences the work that we do with leaders at Take New Ground. The honor and love that Dan has for his mother and the lessons he relays in this conversation are absolutely beautiful. Let's dive in. Dan, how are you, brother? I'm back and I'm well, thanks. I'm still missing Adrian. We're still missing Adrian. He's not going to be with us this conversation. I thought this would, uh, with him still being gone, I thought this would be a great opportunity. I, you know, one of the some of the feedback that we've gotten from listeners of the podcast is asking to learn more about us personally and our backgrounds. Um, and I, I, you know, and I think that's a great idea. But I want to do it in a in the context of the work that we do and the topic of the podcast of the conversation. So it's not just story time, but it's you know how we developed into some of the ideas, philosophies, and work that we do. And so this is the perfect opportunity, I think, to dig in with you, if that's okay. I want to talk a little bit. One particular part of your um, of your history, of your life that I think is really, really fascinating. And from my perspective, listening, I've, I've have, I don't, I don't know how many hours, hundreds of hours in the training room with you now. Um, I pity you, son. I pity you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and there's one very distinct theme throughout all of the trainings that we do, both our public trainings, the revenant offsites, all of that sort of stuff. And you typically start with this conversation and it's the conversation about your mom. And you, you know, you've mentioned things here and there on the podcast about your mom, but I don't think we've really taken the time to like actually talk about what was going on and how that developed, how that is, is so crucial in your development of this work that we do. Um, so I would love to, I mean, you know, you, you typically start off by just t- telling a little bit about your mom. Would you mind doing that? No, I'd love to. Um, first, a disclaimer. What I'm going to tell is my interpretation of what occurred, obviously. Uh, the events were there, but, but you know, what they mean is obviously what I brought to them. And I think that's probably the most important distinction in this. At least that's what I learned from my mother. <laughs> so my mother was a manic depressive schizophrenic. She had a, she would hear voices and, and sounds, and she'd also be manic depressive, a bipolar. And so, uh, you know, she it, and it didn't happen till le- I was about after she had my youngest brother Leo. Um, he was born, and and I think the stress of the family. And we've ta- she and I talked about this, but just the stress of her relationship with my father and four kids, three boys and a girl. Uh, at home alone most of the time my dad would, would was gone most of the time um, either at work or and he liked to gamble and so it was a pretty um, 
it was a close family for a while, and then it got, I think it got too much for them. They were young when they had us, but she, her experience, she told me she felt like her chemistry in her body changed when she thought she didn't have a way out. She, that was her confession to me. And um, I, I, at a young age, became the go-between between her, a lot of her and the psychiatrists. And my father was very helped. My father was really, I mean, at first I asked her, I said, I want to, I'd go visit her. And I said, I'd like to get involved because they were talking about doing some radical things to her. And I, uh, invasive things like lobotomy at the time was something they did. And, you know, he didn't want it. We obviously, I didn't want it. Uh, and then I asked him if I could get involved and he was very generous and let me get involved. My dad's a really interesting guy. He's willing to try things. If, if, if something's not working, he's willing to have a different breakdown. I've always admired that about him. Um, and, and so I and got, how involved. old were you when you wanted to get involved? 12, 12 years old. Yeah. And I was a fairly mature 12, given that I was the oldest. Um, we've been gone through some turmoil. Um, I've, I, I got involved. I've always been interested in deeply involved in relationships. So I was, you know, it's my mother. So, you know, I, I didn't want to see, I couldn't stand what I saw. It was horrible at first. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, it was quite traumatic. Obviously, um, I didn't think it was traumatic. I felt like I was handling it well. But in my teens, you know, I rebelled pretty strongly. I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder, um, was, you know, cocky and arrogant, mostly because I was feeling insecure, uh, you know, comparing my family with everybody else's family. And I had all these judgments. So I would project this cocky, um, edgy, you know, arrogant at times and, and, you know, voiced, you know, outspoken, but I was hiding behind a, a persona, actually quite lonely. And as I left school, I went out and got in a lot of trouble. I was rebellious. I was, you know, got, I was violent and, and, and I was dealing drugs and I blew up my scholarship. I really didn't, I got distracted from playing ball, um, uh, didn't care about my academics. So I left college after a year and went into the, what I call the underworld, created my own life. And um, why I say that, why, how that relates to my mother is during this time, periodically, I, they, you know, what would happen to my, the pattern of my family was my mother would be okay for a while. She'd be fairly grounded. And then she'd not take her, she'd take lithium. They tried all kinds of stuff. Lithium was the only thing that worked and she would stay grounded, but then she would not take it for a while. And then she'd cycle. And when she did, the cycle would start with her disturbing her neighbors. And then the neighbors would call the police. And the police would contact my mother or my father. My father didn't, of course, they were split up. And then my father would contact somebody else. And they would talk pretty soon. I They would call me and then I'd go intervene and get, and I'd get her to the hospital. That was the big deal. Get her to the hospital. Get her to 5150 herself, right? And and so I, I was involved in that, but I got very bitter about all that, you know, bitter about just feeling, you know, just a ton of things. My, you know, I had judgments on my father, judgments on my mother, you know, this is, you know, I got really angry. And then, uh, and it started showing up in my relationship with Eileen. I met Eileen, loved, fell deeply in love with her. And the first 10 years of our marriage, our life together, five years dating, five years marriage was really rough and rough because I wasn't going to let her in. You know, I already, I already had a, when I started to, come out of the addiction, I started to realize how connected my behaviors were to the, 
what the story I made up about my childhood I used to say, I'll never go back to my childhood. It wasn't, you know, I never want to live that again. I hate it. Uh, yet now I look back and I see my mother and that whole drama with my family really prepared me to do what I'm doing now. And, and what it did was in order to save my marriage with my wife, um, I had to re-mean the past, meaning I had to look. So the things that happened in the past happened in the past. That's not why I was bitter. Why I was bitter is what I made up about the past because each one of us in my family made something up different. And so we had different expressions, different personalities. My brother, Corey's one of the funniest guys I know, and he's fun to be with. He's the life of the party. My sister's about as sweet as they come. She's funny and relaxed and you know, she likes to play and she's a great mom. And, you know, they didn't, they, we all went different ways. My brother, Leo is a, one of the, he's just a real tender guy. And, you know, he got, he went through an addictive time as well. He went through a meth addic addiction and came out the other end of it. So we all went, made different things up. Not all of us had addictions to drugs or alcohol. Um, we all had our own little game. And I think whatever we were dealing with our own struggles and I think that that's directly related to how we what we made up about the past. So, in working through this kind of recovery program, I you know with my wife, I started in in deciding that I was committed to my wife. There were a number of things that were invisible that were made visible by my commitment to be there for my wife. Like one of the things in my addiction, I noticed when I was debriefing my addiction to cocaine was. I liked, I hated going home, no matter what. I, I just never wanted to go home. And when Danny was born, he was a little baby. I didn't want to go home. Um, it was chaotic. It was problematic. Now, I didn't put two and two together, but I later on, as I started forcing myself to go home and sit and understand, like listen to what was going on for me, sitting there working with my wife and my child, I realized I didn't want to go home because of what I made up about home when I was a kid it was, you know, it was like not a place I wanted to go. I, yeah. And, and I, what I made up about the disdain, I, it could have been a great place to go home. I could have went home and made a difference for my mom or my dad, or, you know, I could have thought about it, but I thought about it, like, look what it's taking from me. And that's how I was relating to my child and my son. My wife was like, what, if they weren't taking from me, what is it they're bringing to me that could change my life? What call on me? What are they calling out of me that I don't want to own, right? I, if that makes sense. And, and, and I noticed that, you know, it was like my wife wanted me to be involved in, the, in Danny's upbringing and the way we ordered the house. And, and ironically, when I started getting involved and enjoying it, <laughs> about four years into it, she says to me one day, you know, Dan, I think I liked you better as an addict. And, and, and that's when I knew. I said, now we're recovering. It's your turn now, right? And, and she said that mainly because when I was doing my thing in my separate life, she, of course, had control of everything. She had the finances. She could spend it the way she wanted. She could org organize the house. Now she's got me stumbling around, making a mess of things and wanting to rearrange things and, and like yeah. that. And, and that, that, was, that was interesting to me because what I started to see was what was wanted and needed from me to make this work. Now, the next conversation was whether or not I trusted that I could provide that. And and that was, a, which opened up much deeper and more meaningful conversations between my wife and I, because 
we could talk about what was really going on rather than what I thought we needed to talk about so I could get by and get what I wanted. It's an immediate shift. Yeah. Can we go back when you were a kid and, you know, they wanted to do some of these um, pretty severe procedures on your mom and you wanted to intervene. You weren't quite sure that's what was, um, what was going to be best for her. Um, you tell this story about going to the hospital and sitting across from her and, and how you were fine. Yeah. Next. Oh, next to her. Um, would you tell that story? Cause it's pretty monumental in the way that you were able to then be the in-between because you mentioned being the in-between, but, but how you became it is really yeah, interesting. I, I, uh, yeah. I, so I'd been reading. I, I, my, I started reading when my mother first went to the hospital. I started reading. The first book I read was a book called Gestalt Therapy Verbatim by a guy named Fritz Perls, who was part of the Esalen Institute. And, and Michael Murphy, and uh, he wrote a book called Golf in the Kingdom. Those were the first two books I read. And then one of the people I met who, in reading those books, I got involved with people who were at Ross General, which is where, or Ross was where my mother would go into the hospital. And they suggested I read um, some of Bandler, Bandler and Grinder's work which is on neuro-linguistic programming. And it was in that re- reading I, I discovered modeling, what it means to model. And, and, I, and they mentioned, they talk about extensively about how they were able to communicate with schizophrenics, particularly if they were catatonic by modeling. So I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. My mother's, she was catatonic at the time and, and they were thor- they got her all high on Thorazine. So my dad asked him to please, you know, and then they have her tied up in a, in a straitjacket because when she comes out of the catatonia, she can hurt herself. She had a habit of pulling her hair out and, and hurting herself. So she never really hurt anybody else, but she hurt herself. They were worried that she might want to hurt somebody. But I was a big kid. I was five foot five in kindergarten. So by the time I'm 12, I'm six foot. So I can, I can handle my mother. Um, and so I asked my dad if, if I could go sit and try this. And he said, yeah, sure. So, you know, he wasn't really involved. I, I go see her every week. So I went down and they put her next to me in a chair and they no, they had reduced, they, I think they just reduced the Thorazine way low for a while so she could come out of it. And then I, and they might've even stopped. Anyway, they sat her next to me and then I just modeled her by, and you know, breathe at the same level, don't blink and thus they blink. And, you know, somebody in Catatonia breathes very shallow and they blink like once or twice a minute so my eyes are drying out and i'm trying to breathe shallow and and i'm sitting exactly like she is and after an hour and 25 minutes in the way i I knew it was an hour and 25 because there was a portal in the door and we were sitting back against the wall looking out and the door was there i could see the clock and an hour about hour and 25 minutes she turned to me and said finally somebody's listening we had a short conversation and then she you know went back into her state and and then we just started talking from then on and it was a special bond i mean my mother had a special relationship with each of us and uh you know my she had a very special relationship with my sister and my brother cory my brother cory really takes care was really great with taking care of her when she got out and uh, he just provided a lot and my brother leo was constantly working to serve her you know around the house doing all kinds of stuff so we all had a different relationship with her, but they were all very special. And we all have this mutual respect and admiration for her because in the midst of her condition, she took really good care of us. 
I mean, she was a little tough uh, psychologically sometimes, which we learned, you know, we, we had to learn to deal with that. And I, I took me a lot, it took me probably five, six, seven years after maybe eight years after I got out of high school to really get a hold of that. And that's what helped me with my work. Cause I had to, the work I do with others, I work for myself. I work on myself with. The only constant in an organization like yours is change. I want to take just a second to tell you about the change imperative, an ebook written by our very own Dan Takini. Let me ask you, how do you personally relate to change in your business? Does it feel like a threat at times? Does it ever feel like you can't keep up with it or it never happens fast enough? Are there certain players on your team that resist change and keep your company stuck? Growth, change, and transition, these intersections often come with confusion, frustration, and resistance. You can flip those experiences into clarity, confidence, and alignment with the Change Imperative eBook. The Change Imperative is instructions for innovating with your team. Go ahead and click on the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Change Imperative now and feel confident about creating the change in your company necessary to take it to the next level. You've mentioned, I think you've mentioned, I may be off this, but you, you, I think you've mentioned in the past that she had a pretty good sense of humor. Oh, she had a great sense of humor. Wow. She'd laugh at herself. I asked her one time, I said, Ma, how come you never got married again? She goes, oh, nobody wants to live with us. <laughs> <laughs> Just little things like that. You know, she, and she had, she never, ever pulled a punch. If she had something to say, you're going to hear it and you're going to hear it full volume, man. So that woman was a powerhouse and anybody who knew or knew that, I mean, if she had a different opinion, you're going to hear about it. And she was great at listening, but she was not going to, she, she didn't have any, she had very little need for other people's approval. Very little. Mm. She was a good listener, but she would tell you what she's hearing. Yeah. She was a great listener. <laughs> she was a scary listener. Cause you know, I remember I brought a friend home one time and I went down to get changed and I came back up and he's gone. And my mother's sitting on the couch smiling like she has a, like the you know cat with a canary in its mouth. And I go, where's Tom? And she said, oh, he had to go home. And I go, what do you mean he had to go home? Well, he just couldn't hold in the conversation. I mean, I think there's some things he's hiding. And so I went, oh, no. So I run across the valley where Tom, we live in this, on one side of the valley, he lived on the other. So I run across, I get to Tom's house, and he's weeping in his bedroom. Oh, I'm thinking, oh, shit. I go, Tommy, you all right? He goes, how's your mother know that shit? That's spooky. How did she know what was going on for me? I go, Tom, we all wonder that. But, you know, I just want you to know, like, let's talk about it. And he he, he would still come over, but he never wanted me to leave him alone in the house. <laughs> so, so it was so, like that. I mean, another story. My daughter had this boyfriend that went before she got married. She was, you know, like 19, 20 years old. And, Come closer uh, to the mic. Like nineteen or twenty years old, and and uh, the family was like like the guy, but we didn't want her to marry him. And he was, you know, we could. I knew he was a drug dealer. I could tell, and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And she really liked him. Kind of a safe. It was like her, her. This was the guy she was going to save, kind of thing. And so we're all talking as a family. Well, how do we get Liz to see this? How we, you know? And Danny says, "Let's." Have him talk to Big Nani. Now that's what they call my my wife's mother was short, so she was little Nani. My mom's like five seven, so she was Big Nani. And uh, so let's just get him in the room with Big Nani. She'll do the rest. 
So we invite him over and, and we, he's sitting in the kitchen and my, my, uh, we bring my mom and we introduce him and then we leave and we all run out and listen, me and Danny and Eileen are listening in the other room. We can hear what's going on. Cause that way the house is configured. They can't see us. We can hear them. And he, this guy's kind of an Eddie Haskell, you know, on leave it to beaver, you know, Hey, Mrs. Cleaver, love the dress, but he's full of shit. And, and, and he starts to like do that with my mother. And my mother looks at him and says, listen, Eddie Haskell, I know what you're up to. I want to know what your intentions with my granddaughter are. And then she just starts going in and the guy leaves the house after about 15 minutes and doesn't come back. And that was the end of that one. <laughs> so She cleaned it up. Big Nani. Well, she scared Eileen, man. We were going to get married the, and we canceled two weeks before the marriage the first time. And she canceled because she just didn't know if she could handle my mother. My mother was, I had to literally go back to my mother and say, if you don't stop this, I'm going with this woman. I won't talk to you. You become her friend, mom. I need you to do that. Like, and then they became best friends, but you know, she was in, it was, I, you know, I'm her oldest. And she kept saying to my wife, well, my baby, my baby. And I'm like, Oh, stop, <laughs> mom would just stop. And I know what she's doing. She's, you know, driving yeah. this gal away. Yep. I, yeah, I experienced some similar things with my mom yeah. um, about how she talked about me to, to, to women and girls. Not and good. Katie. Yeah. Not good. Um, so to kind of wrap the, the story up, and then I want to talk about why you bring this story, what the purpose of bringing this story into the trainings that, that you do. And you've, you've peppered it in here and there, but I want to be really clear about it. Um, maybe just finish off. I mean, your mom, I mean, she lived a long span of her life towards the end where she didn't have episodes. And she had in the last 25 years of her life, she might've had two episodes, maybe 30 years, two episodes. Yeah. She, and she lived a very healthy life. She was an, uh, a voracious le- reader, um, immaculate. She's, her house is beautiful, very artistic. And, and just, we, you know, my grandkids loved to be with her. My kids loved her. And she, she was, she was just a gracious woman. She, she and my dad are best friends and she's best friends with my father's wife now. In fact, one of the times I'll never forget, we were, it was a Christmas time. We're all at the house, the whole, all the family. And there's, you know, there's probably 25, 30 people there. And she took a glass and she, out of nowhere, she said, can I have your attention? Which everybody's like, oh, it's Jeanette. You know? and, and then she looks at Amy, my dad's wife, and she just says, I want to toast my good friend, Amy. And tell her how much I love her. And my dad heaved. He started crying. And we all just were like moved. And it was because it was so authentic. She had become good friends with Amy. And Amy took good, they took care, you know, good care of her. And she took care of them. And she, there was a lot of honor. And and so there's nothing but love and respect for my mom. And amongst, in the family as well, it was very well reconciled. And my dad, to my dad's credit, my dad was courageous in making sure that um, the family, that nobody got ostracized, no matter how odd they were, that we stood with each other. So Yeah. Well, you came out of the family and you're quite an oddball. So <laughs> you, <laughs> just kidding. So how, so I'd love for you to just kind of outline as we close up. It was beautiful. Thank you, by the way, Pleasure. for it's so great. I, I, every time I hear you talk, tell stories about her, I wish, wish I could have met her. Yeah, I wish you could have too. You'd have liked, you'd, you'd have loved her. <laughs> um, what? How does this? How does this experience and these stories serve the conversation that we're in with leaders and teams? Well, 
I discovered in my work with my mother that the mind can't tell the difference between a real and an imagined experience. And it takes discipline to understand the distinction. Like it takes discipline to really connect with what's really going on based on what's going versus what's going on in my head. And, you know, when I talk about the voices in the training, I talk about the conversation, you're having a conversation, then you're having a conversation about the conversation while you're having a conversation with the other person. And you're also talking to yourself about how you're doing in the conversation. And you're probably talking to yourself about the other person. All that's going on. Well, I saw that in real time with my mother. And I learned to navigate that. I learned not to be distracted from what we needed to talk about. I learned to vet the different conversations that could be going on. I learned to connect the physiological clues the tells that would help me have those conversations in a meaningful way. I learned to stand and speak and listen and to be like, my mother was pretty tough at times. And so I learned to receive feedback in a very difficult situation. And, and to, and I learned how to reinvent what I was making up, that that's really what determined what, if I was going to see a possibility with my mother in that situation, just like in a team, if I'm going to find a possibility, it's in my conversation. Am I open to hear the things I don't want to hear? Am I open in a way that I'm curious about what I could learn? Am I willing to question what I already know? Which I really had to do a lot with with her. Like I thought she was this way, that way, this way, discovering she was far more complex than any little, like any diagnosis of her. She was far more complex and creative and and driven than, you know, to... to she had high values. Like my mother, I really discovered how integrity, the integrity level of her. She, she was willing if she would walk the streets, if that's what it took, she wasn't going to pander. You know, she was just really had a high level of integrity. Her credit score was unbelievable. My brother said she came in to buy a car. He goes, I never seen a credit score. That high. <laughs> I mean, she, every payment on when she died, everything was in order, mm. but I, I, you know, I didn't know that about her. You know, I didn't know that about her until I got to know her and kept, I kept getting to know parts of her. So that stuck with me. And in the training room or with a team, I find myself, okay, good. That's one day. That doesn't mean that's who they are. What else is there? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of room for being surprised. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best part. Yeah. It's um, that I think about that a lot. It's like, um, you know, cause I'm, I'm really an expert up until now at getting, uh, getting stuck in my judgments of other people. I, I always, and, I would love to hear some of those judgments be kind of fun, you know, sit in your yeah. mind and listen to you talk to yourself and be a blast. <laughs> it's a wild place up in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the, there's nothing quite like being surprised by somebody and there's a, you know, there's a level of openness that's required for that. Um, for me to be able to see and hear something different than I'm already collecting evidence for. Yeah, that's a big deal, man. I mean, that's what I noticed. Like, especially in the recovery on the when I, on the recovery side, I realized how much evidence I had I had collected to make my worldview so small. The space of possibility was so narrow that very few people could live in it. That's why I didn't trust them. Like, I couldn't trust myself because I couldn't live in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is great. Anything in anything you else you want to say about or in closing? No, I, I could say this. I, like I talked about. When you get with someone, you know, if you, if you, I talked about this before in another episode where if you commit to something bigger than what you know you can accomplish, it's going to call things out of you that you were never acquainted with. And that's what my experience of my mother was. 
answering the call or the love I had for my mother, not demeaning it, not making myself a good guy or a bad guy, just answering it and learning to connect with her called aspects out of me that I'd never, I was never acquainted with. And then the same thing occurred when I, in my marriage and recovering that. And I just think that that's really her legacy to me is that, you know, and she was like that. She was willing her, 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 like uh, final story. When she called me one time from Boston, she was living in Boston near my sister because she, she lived in, she would travel and live like she'd go live for my brother for a while and Washington. Then she went to Boston. She called me up. She says, my mother, whenever she called, she's always in the middle of a conversation. So you're just, you're included. Yeah. And she you're goes, just coming in and right. mid conversation. I go, hello. And she goes, Hey, listen to this. Can you hear this? And so she puts the phone up and I can hear this. And I go, and she goes, what is that? Do you hear it? I go, that sounds like a pile driver, mom. She goes, oh shit. I'm so glad because I couldn't live with that sound in my head. Click. And she's gone. <laughs> but that speaks to her. You know, when I saw Beautiful Mind, I could only watch it once because that's what she was doing, what that guy did. She was checking in to mm. see if this was really an illusion, the delusional sound that she's going to be stuck with in her head, or was it really going on outside of her? She couldn't discern. So she just, she was so curious that, you know, she had to know. So she called me to listen. Right. And and that's really the kind of, you know, you just got to have the, that, that's gonads. That's like, I'm not going to, I got to find out. And she, you know, she wanted to find out. That's her legacy was the willingness to look into the abyss, even if the abyss looks back or even when the abyss looks back. So, yeah. Her willingness to check in and just face what might be. What's there. Yeah. 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 That's it's amazing. So. The way you honor her, man, is really beautiful. It's been such a gift to me. Uh, the love that you have for her, the way you talk about her, the respect, the the way, um, I mean, it's really, I think about it as, you know, her legacy, her, her life. I mean, how many people, I, I mean, we have what, uh, 90 or more people coming through trainings a year at the cadence that we're currently doing. And every single one of them gets blessed by the life of your mom in the way that you honor her. And that is really, really beautiful to me. Uh, I I appreciate it. I I do love her dearly, just as my brothers and sisters do. And uh, I miss her, but she's with me. Yeah, I, I do. I feel her all the time. So I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Chad. I appreciate it. Of course. All right. Great conversation. I, Thanks for diving in with me, brother. Thank you, man. Always, always a gas. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Ciao. Well, my friends, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast. As a heads up, every Friday we post a Cliff Notes version of that week's conversation with all the highlights in under five minutes. Check that out for a quick and powerful reminder of the principles discussed. I hope this conversation has been valuable to you. If it has, the greatest compliment you could pay us is sharing it with somebody who could use it. Thanks so much for listening and until next week, bye-bye everybody.